0: We are back in the book of Zechariah. Go ahead and start finding that in your Bibles. If you uh, didn't bring a Bible and you need one, there should be one in the chair near you, and you can see the page numbers there as well. We're in the middle of a study. Uh, Last week, I had this grand goal. We were going to get through maybe three chapters, and we got through one of those three. I still have a goal today to get through two of the three, so we will see what happens. Um, So that should be fun. Let me just remind you of a couple things. The book of Zechariah, the Bible in general, uh, 25% of the Bible could be classified as prophecy, predictions about the future. That's a lot, 25% of your Bible is predictions about the future. Many of those events have already been fulfilled, but a large number of those events have yet to be fulfilled and they are still future to us. And they fall into that category, they're lumped into that category of what's called eschatology and eschatology could be translated as the study of last things or the last times. And much of the book of Zechariah, particularly the section of the book we are now, is digging into those events that are still yet future to you and I, um, as well as events that were future to Zechariah but we know have already been fulfilled. And we spent some time considering that. So we are in the third section now of the book of Zechariah. The first section was those first six chapters with all of those visions that he received to encourage the people of his day. There was a small little second section where some people came to Jerusalem to ask a, a theological question, and God gave Zechariah, they didn't ask him, they asked somebody else, but God gave Zechariah the answer, so he answered it. That was chapter seven and eight. And then as we began chapter nine, chapter nine to the end of the book, which is chapter 14, we have these two oracles. Oh, that's a weird word, I think, not a word I am use a lot. Um, burdens, uh, these things that God laid on the heart of Zachariah to share. And there's two primarily, or uh, well, there's two. The first, uh, it begins in chapter 9. Look, it says there in verse 1, it says, the oracle of the word of the Lord is against the land of, and it listed a whole bunch of places, and it went on from there. So for three chapters, it was addressing this first burden that God put on Zachariah's heart. If you look over to chapter 12 for a second, and you look at verse 1 there, you read, it talks about the, or, the oracle of the word of the Lord concerning Israel, thus declares the Lord. And chapters 12, 13, and 14 will address the second of those oracles. Now, we're in the first one, so again, starting in chapter 9. And we've already been introduced to the, the whole purpose of this first oracle is God's future plan for the nation of Israel. Future from Zechariah's day going forward. For the nation of Israel. And what we have concluded, it's in the title, so I ruined the surprise, I guess, uh, is that God's plan for them is the future and the full restoration of his people. And so we've looked at some examples in chapter 9. We, we looked at the, the detailed description of Alexander the Great coming into the land north of Israel, coming into the land of Israel, coming to Jerusalem, but not attacking Jerusalem. And we talked about that when we studied verses 1 through 8 of chapter 9. We looked at that very clear description, chapter 9, verse 9, that very clear description, detailed as it is, of the Messiah's triumphal entry into the city, which we're familiar with if we study the New Testament. We call that Palm Sunday, almost 500 years before it actually occurred, and yet very specific and detailed it's given to us. We saw in verses 10 through 13, of chapter 9, that intertestament period that we, we don't read about a lot if we're just Bible studiers uh, because it's inner intertestament period of the Maccabees where the Romans were coming in and they were pressuring. We looked in, excuse me, the Greeks uh, in particular, the Seleucids uh, and that fellow Antiochus Epiphanes and what he did and so on and so forth, and we spent our time considering that, but where we left off last week is where chapter 10 picks up, and so I think the review was important Anybody agree? All right, amen. Uh, In verses 14 to 17, and verses 14 to 17 of chapter 9, it tells us of a glorious day of the Lord's return and the establishment of his righteous kingdom. And we've been looking at that righteous kingdom. That's the millennium. And so those verses end with a day that is still yet future to us. All of these things were future to Zechariah, but three of the four have already been fulfilled before we all came about. But this event, these final three, four verses of chapter nine are still yet future to us. Again, overall theme of the chapter, the, the three chapters, the full uh, and final restoration of the nation of Israel. And so we are looking forward, Zechariah is looking forward 2,500 years into the future. Now the confusing thing, I think, about Zechariah and some of these other prophets of the Old Testament, is many times as they're seeing things into the future, they're, they're seeing this event here, and then they see another event, which might be 300 years later, and another one, which might be 2,000 years later. And they present it to us almost as if it's this one run long, uh, running long event. And that can be a little confusing as to figure out, okay, when is this and where is that, and how does this fit in? And we see in the New Testament that you remember the disciples didn't quite understand. They were confused. They would say, is, is now the time that you're gonna do this thing and you're gonna do that thing? And just like, no, now's not the time. And, and he, he knew, but they didn't understand. I think though, since we have the entire New Testament in front of us, we can have even a greater understanding than perhaps Zechariah had, who delivered these things. And certainly than some of the disciples may have had. And so today we come to chapter 10. And we continue that prediction of the future blessing of the people of Israel. And again, that's where 9 left off. So let me read the last two verses of 9, and then we'll move into 10. It says this in 9.16. It says, now on that day, the Lord, uh, their God, will save them as the flock of his people. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness and how great his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish, and new wine the young women. And again, we took some time looking at that. Those were images of the prosperity and the peace that the nation would enjoy. And so, again, a quick summary of that verse. It's the restu- restoration of a people that had long been out of the land, but now would be in the land and would be able to enjoy a time of peace and prosperity. Chapter 10. Starting at verse 1. It says now ask rain from the Lord in the season of the spring rain. From the Lord who makes the storm clouds and he will give them showers of rain to everyone the vegetation in the field. For the household gods utter nonsense and the diviners see lies. They tell false dreams and they give empty consolation. Therefore the people wander like sheep. They are afflicted for lack of a shepherd. My anger is hot against the shepherds and I will punish the leaders. For the Lord of hosts cares for his flock, the house of Judah, and he will make them his majestic steed in battle. From him shall come the cornerstone, from him the tent peg, from him the battle bow, from him every ruler, all of them together. They shall be like mighty men in battle, trampling the foe in the mud of the streets. They shall fight because the Lord is with them, and they shall put to shame the riders on horses. I will strengthen the house of Judah. I will save the house of Joseph." I will bring them back, because I have compassion on them. And they shall be as though I had not rejected them, for I am the Lord their God, and I will answer them. A lot of material there. Now, it begins in verse 1, and it makes reference to the spring rain. Maybe your Bible says the latter rain. We're talking about the same thing. In the nation of Israel, particularly in its historic past, there were two regular rainy seasons that came upon the nation of Israel. And the the first was in the fall. uh, That's about October through December. And that is what is called uh, the former rain. And the latter rains were the ones that were in the springtime from April to May. And they were also referred to as the spring rains. And in a day and age without any sort of an irrigation system in ancient Israel, the nation relied uh, heavily on these rains, that these rains would come in their regular seasons to what are the various crops, because it was those crops that were going to provide the food for the nation. And obviously, in a time of drought, nothing could grow. And so Israel then would be desperate for these rains, and they would call out to God for these rains, both in the fall and, as I said, in the spring. Now, throughout Israel's history, and particularly as Israel was conquered in the last couple of thousand years or so, for various reasons and the way those conquering nations came in and did what they did uh, to the people and to the land, there were literal ecological changes that occurred, which pretty much brought an end to those spring rains, and that obviously significantly affected a nation that had been dependent upon it and was dependent upon it and needed those rains. And so here, notice what the Lord says, and we're talking about the restoration of of Israel, restoration of the people, uh, restoration of the nation, uh, what's the word? Restoration. Restoration of even the ecology of the land. It's remarkable. And so he says here, as he's talking about this restoration, he says, ask rain from the Lord in the season of the spring rain from the Lord who makes the storm clouds, and he will give them. The land will be restored once again. Now, when Israel returned back to the land, and this is why I'd never get done, because i just start talking about other stuff. Israel, when they came back to the land in the 19, it was even before the 1940s, but the, the land was, uh, the government was reborn as an independent government in 1948. One of the very first goals of the government was to plant trees. You would think, really? Trees? Like, Shouldn't you be doing roads and bathrooms and things like that, trees, because they knew how important it was to get trees back on the land because the enemy nations cut all the trees down. And then when the Romans came in, one of the, excuse me, it was the Turks, when the Turks came in, they taxed the people based on not just how much land they had, but how how many trees they had on their land. And so many of the Israelites that were still living in the land, they cut their own trees down. So as to not have to pay, and so there was no trees in the land. There's no moisture that's coming down. I don't know how it all works. Ask Mark Fuller; he's a scientist. He'll tell you. But the, the rain's not coming. The land was uh, affected. It became much more deserty, like the rest of the land in the surrounding area. You go there now, and I know a lot of you have been there, and you fly into the land and you see green everywhere. And if you come over other land to get to Israel, and you're passing some of the other nations, it's just desert everywhere you look. And then it's just green Israel. And how can this be? Well, God is restoring the land once again, and he's pouring out his blessing. And so he says here, and this is still future, where it's going to be a full fulfillment of it. But he says, ask rain from the Lord in the season of the spring rain. He says, be bold enough to come to me and ask that it would rain and that the seasons would be fixed again like they once were. And he says, and I will do that. He says, I'll provide what only I can provide. Now, notice verse 2, and this is significant. There, then he starts talking about the household gods. Now, the point of it is, he says, ask me, rain, because the household gods, why would you go to them They ask them for rain? They can't provide it for you. But for years and years and years and years, that's what Israel had been doing. They'd been going to their idols. They'd been going to their false gods, thinking that in them they would get the things they need, the things they desire, and have the desires of their heart met only to find that they don't answer. And so he says, I want you to be bold enough and I want you to come to me. In verse 2 he says, for the household gods, some versions might say worthless idols. I think that's a good definition. He says, for the household gods utter nonsense and the diviners see lies. They tell false dreams and give empty consolation. Therefore, the people wander like sheep and they are afflicted for lack of a shepherd. For too long, they had gone to the wrong place. And those shepherds, those false shepherds, they just led them astray. Whether they did it on purpose or they didn't, the result was they led them astray. Israel had all these difficulties because they lacked a shepherd. Now, they had shepherds. They had prophets, quote-unquote. They had priests. They had teachers. But those shepherds, rather than leading the people for their good, instead they led the people astray. If you look at verse 3, God expresses his anger at the malpractice, if you will, of those shepherds. He says, my anger is hot against the shepherds, and I will punish the leaders, for the Lord of hosts cares for his flock. Do you know that God cares for you? He loves you. He wants good for you. Do you know that? Do you understand that? Have you embraced that? He says, this is my way. Walk ye therein. He wants you to walk with him and to enjoy him in fellowship with him. So he says, for the Lord of hosts cares for his flock, the house of Judah, and he will make them like his majestic steed in battle. Now, in the New Testament, the apostle Paul, when he's talking about leadership in in the church, or if we will, God's family, Paul says that leaders of God's people are actually gifts from God for those people. To lead for those people's good. You can read Ephesians chapter 4 in particular. And here we see that God's anger is so kindled against these Old Testament leaders that Israel had because they were leading the people, not for their good, but if you will, for their bad. And God takes notice of that. He's bothered by that. These people have been leading the people astray. And so you see there in the center of verse 3, he says, so I'm taking leadership back. He says, if you will, for the Lord of hosts cares for his flock or will care for his flock. I'm taking leadership back from these false shepherds and I'm going to lead these people. And then here's the thing about verse 3 as it ends. When God does take back leadership, lead the people, it transforms the people. And they come from a people that were at the mercy of surrounding nations to look at the end of verse 3. And I will make them like his majestic steed in battle. And verse 4 and 5 goes on to talk about all their victories that they would have in battle. He transforms them. It's as you draw near to Jesus that he will transform you to, to be more like Jesus. Not these false shepherds and these other things that we chase after, thinking that they have the answers when they don't. The Lord knows that. And as he restores these people, he intervenes. Look down at verse 6. He says, I will strengthen the house of Judah and I will save the house of Joseph." This speaks of the reunification of the divided nation. Many of you may remember that when King Solomon, uh, King King David, you know that name, King David was uh, the second king of Israel and the nation was really uh, in a glorious state at that point. When David died, his son Solomon took over and Solomon began very well and the nation continued to expand and God's blessing was on the nation. But when Solomon died, the nation divided up into two kingdoms. There was a civil war, and there was a northern kingdom, and there was a southern kingdom. The largest tribe of the southern kingdom was the tribe of Judah. There was only two tribes in the southern kingdom, and so the southern kingdom adopted that name, and they became known in history as the nation of Judah. The northern kingdom, made up of ten tribes, they retained the name Israel. Now, the largest of those tribes as the years went by, the most powerful of those tribes as the years went by was the tribe of Ephraim. And so many times if you read in your Old Testament, you will read reference to Ephraim, and it's talking about the northern kingdom. Ephraim, you may remember. I feel like I've lost some of you. Ephraim's dad was Joseph. Ephraim was the grandson of Jacob. I need a blackboard. Jacob... (laughs) Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob had the 12 sons, remember? And they became the 12 tribes. Jacob's name was changed from Jacob to Israel. They became the 12 tribes of Israel. One of Jacob's 12 sons was a fellow by the name of Joseph. Joseph was blessed by God in significant ways greatly. As a matter of fact, he received a double portion of blessing. And so when you read a listing of the tribes of of Israel, many times you don't see Joseph. But you see his two sons' names, because he got a double portion. One of those sons was Ephraim. And as years would go by in Israel's history, they would become the largest of the tribes, or the most influential. And so the northern kingdom is oftentimes referred to simply as Ephraim. Here, oh, that was unnecessary, I guess. But here, he says, I will strengthen the house of Judah, the southern kingdom, and I will save the house of Joseph, Ephraim, the Northern Kingdom. It's a reference once more to the restoration of God's people. And he will bring the nation back together that had been divided because of that civil war. He says in verse six, continuing, I will bring them back because I have compassion on them and they shall be as though I had not rejected them for I am the Lord their God and I will answer them. Especially after the Romans uh, conquered uh, Israel, Especially then, the Jewish people began to scatter around the world. for Almost for their safety and to go to a place where they could kind of be off by themselves and nobody would bother them. But they didn't all go together to the same place and start a new Israel. They just scattered around the world. And for 1,900 years, they retained their Jewishness, but they didn't have a nation to call their own. That's unheard of. People are typically assimilated into the community that they come from or that they're in. And yet, these individuals, they maintained their Jewishness, and it was in 1948, really, but it started a little before that. It had to do with World War II. And you all know your history. You've studied World War II. And as the Jewish people really had nowhere to go, and they were taken from their homes, and their neighborhoods and communities were destroyed, and everybody they knew was killed and all of this stuff, and they're in these camps, the Nazi camps, and when they were liberated, many of these Jews are like, well, I don't want to go back there. I didn't like it there anyway and I got nothing to go back to there. And people began to think about, we need a place of our own. And the door opened up in Israel, and the people returned to Israel, and the United Nations got involved, and they they helped establish it with the British as it would be a homeland for the Jewish people. And soon, thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions. Today, there's over nine million people that are in that primarily Jewish nation of Israel. And I believe that's just the start of this restoration that we're seeing described in the book of Zechariah. It's just the beginning of it, because even there in Israel, it's not all peace for them as the Lord promises. Well, verse 7 goes on. He says, Then Ephraim, and remember the second-born son of Joseph, Then Ephraim shall become like a mighty warrior, and their hearts shall be glad as with wine. Their children shall see it and be glad. Their hearts shall rejoice in the Lord. Notice that. It's important. He says, I will whistle for them and gather them in, for I have redeemed them, and they shall be as many as they were before. Though I scatter them among the nations, yet in four countries they shall remember me, and with their children they shall live and return. I will bring them home from the land of Egypt and gather them from Assyria, and I will bring them to the land of Gilead and to Lebanon until there is no more room for them. Remember that one prophecy we read where he had to measure Jerusalem to see if there'd be enough room for all the people, and then they were like, there's not going to be enough room for all the people. Anyway, I remember it too. I just thought (laughs) you you might want to reminisce with me. All right, but their children, it says, are going to see it and be glad. And so what that speaks of, and and they're going to rejoice in the Lord, what that speaks of is that this is far more than just a political restoration. This isn't just about a nation once more being formed and coming back to the earth. This is about a work that God's gonna do in their hearts as well, where the people will rejoice in the Lord. That veil, Paul talks about it in Romans chapters nine through 11, that veil of unbelief that has hung over, not every single Jew that's ever lived on the earth, but the people as a whole, that veil of unbelief will be lifted and they will be able to see clearly, they will be found to rejoice in the Lord. There is going to be a full and final restoration of the Jewish people, according to this prophecy. He says there in verse 8, and I will whistle for them and gather them in. My dad used to do that. 4.45, he would stand on the front porch and whistle because dinner was ready. And we had to come from wherever we were in the neighborhood, and we had to be home at that particular point in time. The Lord's going to whistle and gather the people in. Uh, verse uh, 9 goes on to talk about how they had been scattered in that far country and how they shall return to the Lord. Again, we've seen a partial fulfillment of it. Some of us in our lifetimes, those of us born before 1948, uh, the rest of us have been seeing it happen. It will, there will be a full reman- uh, restoration going forward. He goes on in verse 11. He uses language reminiscent of the Exodus from the book called Exodus in our Bibles. He says, and he shall pass through the seas of troubles and strike down the waves of the seas and all the depths of the Nile will be dried up. No hindrances. The pride of Assyria shall be laid low. Remember the Syrians came in and conquered the northern kingdom uh, right around 722 BC and took those people away into captivity. He talks about the scepter of Egypt, that power of Egypt over them will depart. I will make them strong in the Lord And they shall walk in his name, declares the Lord. They're going to walk in freedom. They're going to embrace the Lord. They will recognize Christ as king. A little bit later on, Zechariah is going to talk about they're going to look on him whom they have pierced and mourn for him as one mourns for the loss of an only son. They'll recognize who Christ is. They'll recognize the mistake that they made as a nation, as a people in rejecting him and they will receive him as their long awaited messiah and their king. Again, 1000-year reign of Christ on the earth. It's going to be a glorious day. I'd encourage you if you want to read further to kind of just put some of the other pieces of the Bible together here, you might want to spend some time this week in Romans chapter 9 through 11. Cuz that ends with that phrase and all Israel shall be saved. And you're like, "Well, wait a minute, that's not fair. How come all Israel gets to be saved? Don't you have to receive Jesus?" Well, he explains the whole thing. Read the whole passage, and in the context of what we're seeing here, we see that God does a work in their hearts, just as God did a work in a lot of our hearts in this room. I know we're not all Christians, but many of us are, we are, and the rest of us are sort of on that journey to coming to what it means to know the Lord. The Lord opens up our hearts to understand. We see things that were foolishness to us before suddenly make sense. The, the, where we thought we were self-sufficient, and I'm good. I don't need God in my life. We've come to this place of, I do need God in my life not because I don't have any money or this is happening or that is happening, just because God begins to reveal that our sin has separated from him and we were created to be in relationship with him. And we see that need, and he says, I'm the only one that can meet that need. And that makes sense to us. The veil is lifted and we come to faith in Christ. That will happen for the Jewish people as a whole. There will be a full and final restoration. Now, that day is still yet future. And sadly for Zechariah in the time he was living in, there would be centuries and centuries following him where the nation as a whole would reject God's anointed one in those intervening years. And the Lord, through Zechariah, he's kind of in nine, the end of 9 and 10, he's taking us sort of to the end of the story. We know it. We got Oh, you got that context? Great. Now let's go back and fill in the details leading up to the end of that story. And chapter 11 is going to do that. And chapter 11, it's a difficult passage. It's a difficult passage for those of us that love the Jewish people. In fact, there are many Jews that reject this passage, or at the very least, they reject the the traditional or the common understanding of this passage. They refer to the common understanding of this passage as being anti-Semitic or anti-Jewish. And they reject it as such, and they they don't want to receive it, but I think the the straightforward reading of the text is a difficult text, because what it does is it shows that there are very difficult days ahead for the Jewish people as a whole before that glorious restoration. Now chapter 11, it picks up where chapter 9 verse 9 left off, and so I'll read that again. Chapter 9 verse 9, It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on the colt of a foal of a donkey. Now you remember, that's Palm Sunday. We looked at it, we made the connection in the New Testament of how Jesus came triumphantly into the land. You remember at that day that there were crowds of people welcoming Jesus into Jerusalem. They laid down their coats, they laid down palm branches. Jesus came in on the the fold of the donkey. They were crying out, Hosanna is the son of David, or Hosanna to the son of David. Son of David is a term for the Messiah. So they were saying, it's the Messiah, it's the Messiah. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord uh, in the highest. You remember the religious leaders were like, quiet your disciples down. They're calling you the Messiah. You need to stop them. And Jesus, if I stop them, the stones themselves are going to cry out because this is the day of my visitation that had been prophesied of. Well, you know, sadly, four or five days later, the same crowds in Jerusalem, maybe not the exact same group of people, but they were crying out something else. They were crying out, crucify, crucify, crucify. And they had missed, they had rejected God's Messiah. And chapter 11 of Zechariah covers that rejection and the consequences of that rejection. It, what it looks at is it's a solemn announcement of the discipline of Israel for the tragedy of the cross and their rejection of God's Messiah. James Montgomery Boise said this is one of the darkest prophecies in the entire body of Israel's prophetic literature. I told you before some even say it's anti-semitic or that it preaches violence against the Jewish people. Well we'll begin in verse 1. It says, Open your doors, O Lebanon, that the fire may devour your cedars. Wail, O Cyprus, for the cedar has fallen, for the glorious trees are ruined. Wail, Oaks of Bashan, for the thick forest has been felled. The sound of the wail of the shepherds, for their glory is ruined. The sound of the roar of the lions, or the thicket of the Jordan, is ruined. Now, when we did chapter nine, we saw the very detailed description of how Alexander the Great. How he came in from the north. Remember Hadrach and Damascus and Hamath and all those places. And how he moved in down to the Philistine area and then back to Jerusalem. Very, very detailed description coming from the north. We have that again. It's it's describing a different event, but again, coming from the north. And we know that if you look at verse 1. He says, open your doors, O Lebanon. Today, Lebanon is still just north of the nation of Israel. It talks about Bashan. Now, you may not know Bashan very well, but you've probably heard of the Golan Heights. That's the area of Bashan, which is Israel's north again. It talks about the thicket of the Jordan. A lot of times we think, hear the word Jordan in the Bible, we think of the Jordan River. Well, there's also the Jordan Valley. Thickets don't grow inside the river. They will grow on the edge of the river uh, there in the valley. And that's what this is referring to as well. And that valley is located uh, between the, the Sea of Galilee, so if you're with me, Lebanon, the Golan Heights, the Sea of Galilee... And then a river runs down, and you head toward Jerusalem. That river is the Jordan River, and the area just to the side of the river is the Jordan Valley. And so it's referring to an area coming in and attacking from the north uh, the land of Israel. Now, if Zechariah wrote this 100 years earlier, we might look at it and say, that well, that's probably talking about Babylon. But he wrote this hundred years after, 135 years after the invasion of Babylon. And he's speaking about something yet future. And it fits in perfectly with the invasion of Jerusalem, or of Israel, and the destruction of Jerusalem at the hands of the Romans. And the Romans, they, uh, they came into the area of Jerusalem. They were around during the time of Jesus, you remember. Uh, Pilate and Herod and all those folks, they were around. But they, they went to war against the Jewish people in 66 AD. And they eventually laid siege to the city of Jerusalem. It took about four years for the people to basically starve to the point of death. Uh, and the inability to fight and just Jerusalem's walls were destroyed. And Jerusalem went, uh, the Romans went in and destroyed Jerusalem, sent the people running for their lives or off into captivity. And for the next 1900 years, a little less than that, Jerusalem was essentially or Israel was uninhabited by the Jewish people there's someone here and some there of course but uninhabited by the nation and taken over by the by the Romans and then by the Turks and by any other nation that wanted it It seems I think 17 different nations took over the land in the intervening years. It was a day of great destruction uh, and that's what Zechariah sees in the generation immediately following the generation that rejected Jesus. It was a day that Jesus foresaw. When Jesus triumphantly came into the city of Jerusalem, you may recall, as everyone is cheering, that Jesus was weeping. He was mourning, he was crying over the city of Jerusalem. As he looks at it, and, and I, I can imagine exactly where it occurred, I don't know exactly where it occurred, but there, there are hills that come down, you can see it up there, there are hills that come down off of the edge uh, uh, leading into Jerusalem. The center of Jerusalem is where that little gold dome is. Today that's the, the Dome of the Rock, the Muslim mosque, but that sits right on the, the Temple Mount area, and in the day of Jesus there would have been a temple right in the exact same spot or right near where that gold dome is. And all around Jerusalem, and particularly in the part that is at the bottom of these pictures here, that's where Jesus was coming from. He was coming from Bethany, and he was heading down into the city. So he would have been coming down this hill and then going back up another small hill, going into the Kidron Valley there. And he's on this donkey, and he's coming down this hill, and he has a you know, bird's-eye view of the whole city. And we learn in the Scripture that Jesus begins to weep for the city. It says this. This is in uh, the book of Luke. It says, Now when Jesus drew near and he saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. Would that today you would receive me as your Messiah, he says. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and they will surround you and they will hem you in on every side. We call that a military siege. And they'll tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Matthew comments on this. He says that Jesus said these words, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing see your houses left to you desolate. And so Jerusalem, and more specifically the people of Jerusalem, but even the city of Jerusalem, Will be destroyed because the people had missed the time of their visitation, as Luke calls it there in Luke 19. And because they did, a judgment was meted out against the nation as a whole. Zechariah 11 prophetically records the events of that judgment. We already saw verse 3 as 1 through 3, how the Romans came in. Verse 4 goes on. It says, Thus says the Lord, my God. Oh, now he's going to do an interesting thing. I, I didn't prep this. He's going to have Zechariah act out the prophecy. And so he's going to tell him, I want you to play the part of a shepherd, of a group of sheep, and I want you to act out what I tell you to act out. So that picks up in verse 4. Thus says the Lord my God, become a shepherd of the flock that is doomed to slaughter. Those who buy them slaughter them, and they go unpunished. And those who sell them say, blessed be the Lord, I've become rich. And their own shepherds have no pity for them. For I will no longer have pity on the inhabitants of the land, declares the Lord. Behold, I will cause each of them to fall into the hand of his neighbor, and each into the hand of his king, and they shall crush the land, and I will deliver none from their hand. Zechariah, he's going to act out a prophecy. And it's a prophecy of judgment that the Lord makes on the people. A people that are referred to there in verse 4 as the people that are doomed the flock that is doomed to be slaughtered. He's instructed there to assume the role of this shepherd. And in doing so, he becomes a type of the Lord Jesus, or he becomes a type of Christ who has a flock of his own that were doomed to be slaughtered because they did not know the day of their vegetation. That's the flock that Jesus wept over. Zechariah is told to play that part. Verse 7 goes on, So I became the shepherd of the flock. That was doomed to be slaughtered by the sheep traders. And I took two staffs, one I named Favor, two sticks there, one I named Favor, the other I named Union, and I tended the sheep. In one month I destroyed the three shepherds, but I became impatient with them, and they also detested me. So this is acted out over a month period of time. And in a sense, uh, here, Zechariah, he becomes like, he, he gets rid of the shepherds that had been there, and he takes over. One month, I got rid of them, he says. And so I said, I will not be your shepherd. What is to die, let it die. What is to be destroyed, let it be destroyed. And let those who are left devour the flesh of one another. And I took my staff favor, and I broke it, annulling the covenant that I had made with all the people's. And so it was an old on that day, and the sheep traders who were watching me knew that it was the word of the Lord. Then I said to them, if it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And so they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and I threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. And then I broke my second staff union, annulling the brotherhood between Judah And Israel. Zechariah takes probably the most common piece of equipment that a shepherd would have, which was his shepherd's staff. He takes two of them, as you can see here. And it was this long staff that had a little hook on the end of it, and you could use it to push and to pull and to beat and to do whatever you needed to do as you were the shepherd protecting your sheep and guiding your sheep and leading your sheep. He takes two of them. We're told they're going to represent God's uh, desire to show grace to his people. That's the first one, this one favor here, and his desire that the people would unite. That's the second one. It's called union. And as their shepherd, the good shepherd, as he's uh, referred to in John 10, we know that God's supreme desire is for all of our good. And particularly for his people of Israel, it was for their good. And so the first thing that he needs to do is looking out for their protection. The first thing he has to do is deal with those shepherds that had led the people so poorly. In verse 5, it speaks of that. Um, their their own shepherds, it says, has had no pity on them. We see that there were three such shepherds. Now, we don't know exactly who those three are. Um, some of the common interpretations that refers to Israel's Uh, prophet priests and kings and the poor job that they did we don't necessarily know all we know is that there were shepherds leading Israel and they were doing it poorly and they didn't have pity on the people and they didn't care if the the flock was destroyed by some wild animal or some bad shepherd whatever they didn't care at all as long as they got paid and they got their money and so he intervenes here Zechariah playing the part of Jesus verse 9 he says here as they reject Jesus We know the New Testament teaches that. He's going to pull his hand of blessing off of them. Verse 9 says, well, what is to die, let it die. What is to be destroyed, let it be destroyed. Now, again, we remind ourselves that what God does here is simply removes his hand of special protection from his people. The people were demanding, leave us alone. We want to do our own thing. We want to go to our own devices. And the Lord says, all right, if that's what you want, that's what I'll let you do. And the people left alone. It is not a good thing for God to leave you alone. And so when God brings conviction in your life, it stinks. I hate it, the feeling. It's like, oh, yeah, I got to go say sorry to that lady or whatever it might be. Nobody likes conviction. But when God brings conviction in our lives, that's a reminder to you he's not leaving you alone. And it should lead to our praise of him. God, thank you. You're so good because you want good for me. You don't want me to develop a hard heart. You don't want me to develop a bitter heart. You don't want me to be an unforgiving person. You don't want me to be an angry person that responds in that anger. You want good for me, and that's why you keep convicting me of these things. Thank you, Lord. And we receive it. But when God leaves us alone, it's not a good, good thing. But if we keep insisting on having our own way, he might just leave us alone. As he does here, he says of Israel, What is to die, let it die. What is to be destroyed, let it be destroyed. Many of us here, I'm sure, have memorized or were familiar with Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me lie down in green pastures. He restores my soul. He does a whole bunch of other things. Read it yourself. I forget any more than that. But that's his desire for us. Lying down in green pastures, peace, rest. And if only these Jews here... I hate saying it that way because I feel like I'm those Jews or whatever, and and I'm not. That's not my heart. I hope you know that. But if only those Jews in Jesus' day knew it was the day of their visitation and responded, we wouldn't need a Zechariah chapter 11. Jesus said this. He said, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's his desire for them. That was his desire for them. And that is his desire for you and I. Verse 9, horribly it says, And let those who are left devour the flesh of one another. You can read your history books. That's exactly what happened in the city of Jerusalem. As for a period of four years, they were surrounded with the inability to, to grow their own food and bring their own food in. Soon people began to devour the flesh even of one another. Solidifying their fate, look at verse 12. It says, Then I said to them, If it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out my wages. So again, think of the uh the, the the play that Zachariah is doing. He took the part of a shepherd, and the conclusion of the play here, or coming to a conclusion, he says, All right, I worked here for a month for you. If you know if you think I did a good job, give me my wages. And it says that they weighed out for him 30 pieces of silver. That sounds pretty good. It sounds like a lot of money. Uh, It wasn't, actually. Verse 13, Then the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter. Notice the lordly price. I don't know how you denote sarcasm, but the word lordly there was meant to be sarcastic, uh, at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver, threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. In the play The wages were for Zechariah's work as a shepherd. But remember, Zechariah is representing Jesus. And so the wages is the value that they applied, if you will, to Jesus. 30 pieces of silver, according to Exodus chapter 21, is the value that the Old Testament law set for a slave who had been gored or slain by an ox. All right? And so. You are a neighbor to a guy, and you let your ox get out, and your ox goes and kills the neighbor's slave or servant, or he goes and he maims him so that he can't work any longer. The price that you had to pay for that, the minimum amount that was legally required to pay was 30 pieces of silver. If this all sounds familiar to you and the number sounds familiar to you, that's the exact price That the religious leaders, the rulers, agreed to pay Judas if he would betray Jesus. And so, again, verse 12 is a description of that ultimate rejection of God's anointed one by his people. This is the minimum. What's the minimum I have to pay? That's what they valued Christ as, Jesus says. Verse 13, then the Lord said, throw it to the potter, the Lordly price at which I was priced by them. If you remember your New Testament, you remember that Judas, it seems, had a change of heart. He had betrayed Jesus. He had negotiated 30 pieces of silver. He had looked again and again for an opportune time, which he could betray Jesus when there wouldn't be a lot of people around or whatever it might be found that time in the cover of darkness in the garden there where Jesus regularly when he was in Jerusalem would go to pray. He led an army of people or a group of people that would come and that they would arrest Jesus. And in the midst, in the intervening of all of this, there it seems there was this change of heart. And he went back. And he said, I call it all off. Here's your money back. Let's not do it. And those religious rulers were like, well, what's that to us? You know, we moved up. We're already moving ahead. And so Judas then, he throws down the money. He said, well, I don't want this money. And sadly, the scripture says he ran out and he killed himself. Now, the place that he threw down this money was in the temple courtyard there, where the chief priests, the rulers, the elders would have been gathered. And so those folks, they gather up the money. What are we going to do with this money? And they're told, well, we can't put it into the temple treasury. It's blood money. It's their blood money. They're the ones that did it. They defiled this money by using it to put an innocent man to death. And we can't put that into the temple because it'll defile the temple's coffers or whatever it might be. And so they decide instead, let's use it for a capital project. Let's buy a potter's field. A potter's field, the potterer, uh, the guy that made pottery. I can use all kinds of suffixes. Uh, The guy who did that, whenever, you know, like we're making a pot, it doesn't work out they would throw it into this field and the field just become jagged rocks essentially of all these pieces and edges of the pottery and the field would become worthless you couldn't grow anything there and in Jerusalem Jews have to be well anywhere they they're supposed to be buried within 24 hours of their death or actually before sundown and so you got visitors coming to Jerusalem to celebrate the holidays they get sick they die what do we do with these people where are we going to put them and so they had to have a field to bury these folks and they begin to bury those folks in the potter's field, this worthless field. And so the, the um, religious rulers here, these chief priests, they fulfilled the prophecy of Zechariah, certainly not by design, but they fulfilled it unwittingly, even as Judas fulfilled it unwillingly. And we have that, that whole scenario that's given there. We have a few more verses. Are you with me still? We're having a good time? All right. Two plays. Zechariah, you're really good at acting. How you want to try another role? Sure, I'll take another role. He gets another role in verse 15. Then the Lord said to me, Take once more the equipment of a foolish shepherd. So he played the part of a shepherd. He was representing Jesus. We'll call that one the good shepherd. And now he's going to play the part of a foolish shepherd. He says, For behold, I'm raising up in the land of a shepherd who does not care for the, in the land, a shepherd who does not care for those being destroyed or seek the young, or heal the maim, or nourish the healthy, but devours the flesh of the fat ones, fat sheep, tearing off even their hooves. Woe to my worthless shepherd who deserts the flock. May the sword strike his arm and his right eye. Let his arm be wholly withered and his right eye be utterly blind. So here, the the part of a foolish shepherd down in verse 17, he's referred to as a worthless shepherd. This shepherd now is the exact opposite of the first shepherd that we looked at. Again, called foolish or worthless. We see in verse 16, this shepherd wouldn't care for the well-being of his sheep and not even the lives of his sheep. We see in verse 16, a little further down, that those sheep that were wandering off, the young, that were going to be injured as a result of doing so, this shepherd didn't do anything about them wandering off, let them wander off. We see in verse 16 there, a little further down, that those sheep that were malnourished and the danger of being in that condition, this shepherd didn't do anything about it. We see here that those that were maimed, this shepherd would do nothing to help them with their injuries. Instead, what we see in verse 16, as it says at the the end of verse 16, what this shepherd will do with his sheep will devour the flesh of the fat ones, tearing off even their hooves. Now, what kind of shepherd would do that to the flock that was in his care? Well, the answer is in verse 17, a worthless shepherd. And sadly, because Israel rejected the good shepherd, they would be given a false shepherd. This is what Jesus said in John chapter 5. He says, I've come in my father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. So that another that they're going to receive, Jesus talking about there when he was alive here on the earth, is the worthless shepherd that Zechariah is closing out this chapter. And so this prediction of Israel's future. So remember the story here. We're predicting future events to Zechariah. He begins with the, the end. This is where they're going to end, full and final restoration. But these are the things that are going to be leading up to it. Before they get to the end of the full and final restoration, there's going to be this event where a worthless shepherd will be invited in to lead the people. They will have rejected the good shepherd but accepted another. And this person is talked about all throughout the scriptures. Daniel chapter 9, verse 26 refers to him as the prince that shall come which will destroy the city and its sanctuary. Revelation chapter 13 refers to him uh, as the beast that will rise out of the sea and that was given a a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 refers to him as the man of lawlessness. It says, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, even so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. And so whether you're talking about Zechariah 11 or 2 Thessalonians 3 or Revelation 13 or Daniel chapter 9, we're speaking of the same individual, the one who's most commonly known as the Antichrist. And so you have the Christ figure in that first shepherd, you have the Antichrist figure that Zachariah is playing the part of in the second picture. The Jewish people as a whole had rejected the Christ of God, and they will instead embrace the Antichrist as the answer to all their longings. And he will be the one whom the Jews will receive as their Messiah. And we know that he, the scripture says he's going to come in great power and signs and wonders and be a man of peace and be able to sort of lead all the nations and so on. But sadly, as the book of Revelation and elsewhere reveal, it's not until about halfway through this time of judgment that he's going to reveal his true colors, the Antichrist, that is. And he'll reveal his true colors to the Jewish people and the Jewish, at that point, it'll be pretty much too late for them They'll recognize the mistake that they made, but he will have turned his wrath and his violence against them, and many will die as a result. I forget the, I think as many as a third will die as a result. Well, time doesn't permit me to really dig into verse 17, but it's really cool. You should read Revelation 13. Because Revelation 13 explains a little deeper, it seems there's this assassination attempt against the Antichrist. That should have killed him. It talks about wounding his head and wounding his arm. And it seems as if like he he comes back to life. And the people are like, oh my gosh, he is God, you know, or whatever it might be. So you can read that on your own. But verse 17 says, woe to my worthless shepherd who deserts the flock. May the sword strike his arm and his right eye. Let his arm be wholly withered and his right eye utterly blind. Now the reason I bring it up here is because it's the last verse of the chapter and we're verse by verse, so we got to cover them all. But with time being short, the reason why I bring it up is to point out that even though God is the one that appoints for this foolish shepherd to rise up, that does not mean, and it is not meant to indicate that God approves of this false shepherd. God will judge this worthless shepherd who abused his flock. And Revelation 19 so clearly states, and I'm going to read this, it'll be one of our last verses. It says, now, and the beast was captured, that's the Antichrist. And with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image, and these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And so there is a coming glorious, wonderful future and full day of restoration for the Jewish people, but first there's a, a ver- some diff- very difficult days that are ahead, all because They missed the day of their visitation. Today, the scripture says, is the day of salvation. So if you're not a Christian here yet, but you've been thinking about these things and you have found yourself, I'm going to get to that later. You know, they're, they're right. I know they're right and I'll do it eventually. May I just say today is the day of salvation. Don't miss the day of your visitation where God comes and is ministering to your heart because the heart has the ability to harden over. It has the ability to get callous. It has the ability to miss something, which before, like we're, we're like the pain of something, you don't even feel it anymore because the heart is hard. Don't let that be you. If you'd like to talk further about that, please come see us afterwards. We have some folks up front here. We'd love to answer some of your questions that you have. And for the rest of us that are followers of Christ and we've been followers of Christ, keep looking up. Jesus Christ is returning, and he's returning soon. I think everything is in place for it, where it wouldn't be like, what, now? It just feels like, yes, finally, now. Make sure you're ready for that day. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your word. Lord, thank you that you see all of these things. You sit outside of them. You look down. And you're not worried about them. You're not concerned about them. You have all these things in control, you know. Lord, we thank you for your heart, Lord, that you desire good for every one of us. And Lord, uh, I pray, Lord, as we go about, we make decisions in our lives, Lord, I, would, I pray that we would be even more mindful of how, which decisions would be for our good. What would God have us to do? What does God want to do in this circumstance for us? And rather than just perhaps being led astray, astray by our flesh, Lord, that our spirit would reign So Lord, thank you for your word. I do ask for you to bless it in Jesus' name.